It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Hello and welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Thanks for tuning in today. We've talked about biking and walking infrastructure a lot over the past few years, and it always amazes me that there is so much more to say. For instance, crosswalks. Who do you think is legally protected in a crosswalk? Well, you might be surprised to learn that all pedestrians are protected in crosswalks, Yet very few states have protections for cyclists, wheelchairs, and even babies in strollers. And this is just one issue that my first guest, Dr. Kara Haman, and I talk about in our conversation today. Kara is an epidemiologist who studies injuries, especially those incurred by cyclists and other vulnerable road users, and she's got her finger on the pulse of safety. In the second half of the show, I'll introduce you to Terry Lansdell. I'm not exactly sure how to categorize him. He's both ridden and crewed Race Across America. He's done Race Across the West on a fixed gear bike. He's been a triathlete. And now he's the executive director of Bike Walk North Carolina, as well as a member of the Charlotte Mecklenburg Planning Commission. So see, I don't have a category for that. But damn, he's interesting, well-spoken, and has some great stories to tell and interesting ideas to convey. So as we delve into Kara Haman's work, we find that she's got a series of studies relating to safety and injury for vulnerable road users. She's an associate professor of epidemiology with targeted interests in transportation safety, injury epidemiology, vulnerable road users, such as pedestrians, bicycles, etc., and global injury prevention. Hi, Kara. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me on the show today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's my pleasure. How's the University of Iowa today? It's good. It's a nice sunny day, so we're doing great here. That's good. That's good. Let's see, Iowa, that means ragbri. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we did it in 1999 on our tandem, and it was supposedly the longest and hottest drag bride ever. It was really hard. <laughs> uh, doesn't sound fun. Yeah, it definitely varies from year to year yeah. <laughs> based on Eight- the weather and the route. Yeah, you yeah. and 8,000 of your best friends, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We did have fun, though. Good. So uh, I want to talk about you and your work, but I think what we should do first is define what an epidemiologist does in the context of the work you're doing. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, as you said, I'm I'm an epidemiologist by training, specifically an injury epidemiologist. And just so we're on the same page, epidemiology is really the study of epidemics um, is the literal definition. But in terms of injury epidemiology, really what I'm trying to understand is the distribution and determinants of injuries. Um, and more specifically, I I primarily focus on road traffic safety as the type of injuries I study. And then 
beyond just understanding why they happen and what are the risk factors, I also try to move beyond that to understand what are effective prevention strategies. All good, especially in the context of what we do, <laughs> when I, yes. I talk about it and what we hope to work on. So if you were to give us a broad def, um, kind of a, a picture of the work you're doing right now, I know how I found you was this article you did about crosswalks and how inherently dangerous they are and what it would take to simply fix them. It's really semantically, it's a very easy fix. Mind wise, I'm not sure that drivers will ever pay attention. You know, that's a whole different yeah. thing. That's a whole thing about designing streets correctly. So mm -hmm. tell us about the projects that uh, most interest you right now, what you're working on, even though they're very, there are a lot of them. I think, um, well, relevant to bicycling, um, I have one project, one of the big projects I'm working on is related to understanding the effectiveness of bicycle safety education for kids. And so we're doing kind of an interesting approach where we are setting kids up with GPS and cameras and they record their bike rides for a week, then they get an education program, then they record another week and we can see in the real world, are they becoming safer riders? Like, are they picking safer routes? Are they using hand signals more? That type of thing. And because there's lots, all kinds of bike education for kids, but not very much evidence of how effective it is. So that's one of the big studies I'm working on. Um, so that's more at the intervention level, but then I also have work related that's more focused on using big data sets and trying to understand trends. So like, like crash data and hospital data, we've done some work looking at um, how uh, outcomes of crashes in terms of charges and convictions given to drivers. And so that's actually related to the crosswalk work that you mentioned one of our next steps is to look at some crash data, um, specifically crashes that happen in crosswalks and what are the legal outcomes of those crashes. So that that's kind of our next step on the horizon. All interesting to me and all topics we've spoken of, except for maybe some of the stuff you're doing with kids. More, is there more than one program going on with the kids? And where are these kids with these GPS units? Yeah, so that the study that we're doing right now is really focused here in Iowa in in our local community, and we're focusing on one program that um, is pretty comprehensive. It's it's a four we call it bike safety camp, <laughs> and so it's a four day program where we do some in the a little bit of in the classroom, some skills based coursework, and then we take them out for actual rides. And their their last ride they do with us is a ten mile capstone ride. And so these are it's really focused on kids that are nine to twelve years old, kind of in that window where they're starting to ride independently, like without adult supervision, but it's before they start driving. So it's kind of a, a key window for, for kids in terms of bicycling um, independently. Let me ask you a question about these kids and their parents. Is there any pushback from parents about letting kids ride on their own? Yeah, I think definitely. I think there's a lot of parents are nervous, you know, which I don't blame them for all the bad drivers we have on the road um, that aren't paying attention. Parents are nervous about letting their kids ride on the road and um, are, you know, either the kids preferring or their parents are telling them to ride on the sidewalk, which we actually know around age 10, you know, around that age group is where they they have the, both the motor and the cognitive skills to make good decisions about riding. And it's actually safer for them to ride on the road because cars 
are looking for other people on the road and not so much as on sidewalks yeah. and that's especially important at like intersections where if a kid's riding on the sidewalk like right hook turns is one type of um, crash that or right hook crashes is what is one of the big problems we see with um, drivers are looking left to make a right turn they're looking for traffic left to make a right turn and they're not looking to the right where somebody might be on the sidewalk um, and that's that's where kids run into trouble um, and there are really any cyclist <laughs> runs into trouble. That's why in like in our program, these kids are old enough where we're starting to um, teach them about how to safely ride on the road, not on busy roads, you know, picking lower traffic roads, but um, really opening their eyes to, oh, this is a place that maybe it's kind of counterintuitive sometimes that it's safer to be on the road than, than it, on a sidewalk. So let me take a moment to reintroduce you, and then we're going to talk about this crosswalk thing. And then there okay. are a couple of other things I want to talk about. We're speaking with Dr. Kara Haman. She is an epidemiologist who studies traffic accidents, injuries uh, at the University of Iowa, which is in what city? It's in Iowa City. Yeah, it is in <laughs> Iowa City. So let's get back to this crosswalk uh, study. And what the problem is with crosswalks, pedestrian, not just for cyclists, obviously for pedestrians and for people who are what we would call vulnerable users of the road. You know, jaywalking is a big deal or was a big deal. And, and it's funny today, I saw a sign that says no jaywalking. And I'm thinking, I haven't seen one of those in a yeah. long time. But tell us about this crosswalk problem and what that simple solution could be, at least legally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think in short, the the problem is there's a gap in crosswalk laws in the United States, in most states. So it's a state level issue. Um, the majority of states in the U.S. don't do not protect bicyclists and oftentimes not other like human powered devices. And what they're where we're seeing is mostly crosswalk laws are are saying vehicles must yield to pedestrians, and pedestrians are usually defined as a person on foot. And so that, if you think about that, that really leaves a whole bunch of other users of crosswalks out, um, like bicyclists, of course, but also even in some states, there's not protections for people in a wheelchair or on an e-scooter, or we're talking even babies in strollers. You know, it's so specific to people on foot. Um, and our our preliminary look at this um, we it's yeah it's over half of the states aren't protecting bicyclists quick stats what we found we did an analysis across 50 states in dc and only 20 states protect most vulnerable vulnerable road users um including bicyclists 16 states protect most vulnerable road users like wheelchair users but they explicitly are excluding bicyclists um three states protect people on foot and bicyclists but they don't cover like the other categories of, of vulnerable road users. And then 12 states only protect people on foot. So there's, it kind of varies on which state you're in, but most states have some, some type of gap in their law. That's so weird. Yeah, it is. And I think, I think it's probably just as simple as people think crosswalk equals pedestrian. And that's what they put in the, the code. They didn't think about the other users like you said, it's really a semantic issue. You know, if they would have said uh, the, the fix I proposed um, 
like in the article you mentioned was you could simply change the word pedestrian to persons in a crosswalk and that would cover everyone. Maybe not everyone would buy into that, but if you want to get a little more fancy, you could say persons legally authorized to use a crosswalk, you know, something like something to that effect, but it could still be a pretty simple change to, to cover, you know, people that are legally using the crosswalk that should, that vehicles drive, drivers should have to yield to. Um, and we're not seeing that, uh, across the board in the US. So what's interesting is as people are changing or as cities or, or communities are changing their sidewalks, they are ramping down into crosswalks, assuming that there are going to be vehicles like wheelchairs. Yes. And and yet it still says pedestrians. So you would think that they would make that change at the same time. But I guess one is planning and the other is legislation. And are you seeing mm-hmm. any um, states picking up your idea and making those changes? So yeah, I'm glad you asked. I I have, I'm here in, I'm in Iowa. So I have my finger on the pulse mostly here in Iowa specifically, but we actually have um, a representative that proposed a bill this session uh, that expands protections to users in, and just to, to know where we are in Iowa. In Iowa currently, our law says pedestrians, which is defined as people on foot. We're only protecting people on foot currently. The proposed bill would expand out, and it it doesn't just change the word to persons, but it would it expands out to a list of users, and then also says similar devices. So it, it essentially covers anything that's human powered, um, which would be fantastic if if that goes forward. It did. Uh, it was proposed in the House. It's it's passed unanimously unanimously out of subcommittee, and it's kind of in it's on its way, but. We don't know what's going to happen with it just yet. Um, so thankfully, we've seen some movement already, which is pretty exciting. I don't know of any other states that are moving on anything yet, but that's to be determined, I guess. So is this a topic that could be brought before the National Bike Summit? Possibly. Yeah, I think so. I, I hadn't actually thought of that direction, but yeah, I think so. We yeah. <laughs> Next month in D.C., it seems to me that yeah. it would be an easy uh, part of the ask going up on Capitol Hill to say to your legislator, oh, and by the way, the state of Ohio is using the word pedestrians and we should just change it to this list of users. Mm-hmm. Of the pop- I mean, it seems like that would be a really simple thing or even maybe the Department of Transportation into Pete Buttigieg. I don't know. I'm just looking at it like it's so dumb. <laughs> I just feel like it's really stupid. Yeah, you know? the, unfortunately, I think it really is a state level issue because every state has their own traffic code, you know? So it, I don't know that there's like a federal level solution to it. Um, unfortunately. Um, (laughs) so I, but yeah, I think any advocacy to, to get this, to raise awareness and to, to make changes to be more, you know, expand protections is it makes sense and is good. Um, but yeah, we we have actually shared we've at least shared this information with the League of American Bicyclists, trying to get like a some and and other key people, but trying to get it on people's radar more. Yeah. So what comes to mind as soon as I read the article, what came to mind for me was the Google car. I think it was a Google car, the self-driving car that hit the woman in Arizona who was walking her bike across the street in a crosswalk at night and was hit and killed. 
Oh yeah, that and, that wasn't in the article, but yeah, you're it just reminded you of that. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that was like an automated vehicle. Right. That was it had a human in it though, but the the driver wasn't paying attention, and the it the vehicle failed to recognize the woman walking her bike across. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, mm-hmm. distracted car. Yes, <laughs> you know, it's yes. just crazy stuff. Crazy yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. So. We talked a little bit about kids, which I I really have some concerns about a younger generation not using bicycles. And yet urban planners are hearing from people that they want these younger generations, these Gen X, Gen Z, whatever the heck they are, whatever alphabetic letter they are these days, want to be able to bike and walk to groceries, schools, work, pharmacies, whatever it is but I'm really not hearing a lot about what's being done to encourage a younger generation to ride. And I'm wondering about the role that safety plays in that. And of course I've stopped riding a lot on the road. I know you're an avid cyclist. You're a commuter, right? Yeah. I ride to work and I mean, I, yeah, it's scary riding on the road, even as someone who's ridden for a long time, you know, it's, it's become scarier um, because of drivers. Yeah. Not behaving. Um, not paying attention. But um, I think, yeah, it's a huge problem. We've seen huge decreases in like active modes of transport to school, for example, for kids, like there's lower biking and walking. I think one thing is, um, or I think safety for sure is a concern among parents. They're scared to let their kids go off on their own on a bike um, or even walking sometimes. I don't, I think maybe some of that is founded, you know, like it makes sense because we do have poor drivers on the road. Um, but I do think there are solutions, you know, like helping helping people find safer, low traffic routes. Um, I think model, like as with anything, modeling is important. So getting more parents on bikes and ha- going with their kids on rides, I think is important. And then I think te- teaching kids about safe biking and how, how to make safe route choices and how to follow traffic rules. That's important as well. I don't think there's like a golden magical <laughs> solution. I think it's like we have to go at it at all angles um, to, to see a, any kind of change. When yeah. do you think you'll have statistics on the program that you're the, the pilot program that you're running right now? Yeah. So we, it probably, uh, it may be like another year. We're yeah. kind of in the, we're in the middle of data collection, so we don't know for sure yet our impact. Yeah. What are some of the other projects you're working on? So I, I mean, I have other projects that are outside of bicycling, if you want to hear about those. So I have <laughs> one, they're still related to transportation, but I have, and they may be loose leaves, circle back to bicycling, but are relevant. I have one project that's evaluating, um, licensing policies for older drivers. So things like um, renewal periods and having to come in in person to renew and having to take a vision test. So kind of surprisingly, there's not that much evidence that those type of policies are effective in reducing crashes and injuries. So we're trying to understand, um, we're looking at data from 13 different states in the U.S. to um, look at changes in their licensing laws over time and how those have impacted um, crash and injury rates hmm. um, to see, yeah, or is having like a shorter renewal period or having people come in person, does that actually improve or 
prevent crashes and injuries. So a question that would come up for me right away is the vision thing is one thing, but how about reflexes? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. how would you test reflexes, you know, and, and depth right. perception? Well, depth, depth perception, I guess, is part of sight. So, yeah, I can understand. You know, I watch some of these drivers. Now, I'm not young, but um, I'm very cautious because I'm a cyclist about what's going on in the road. But I watch right. some of these older riders and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Maybe you shouldn't be uh, behind the wheel of that car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's such a, in the U.S., it's such a, it's a hard issue to tackle because we've set ourselves up to basically be dependent on driving at right. such a high level. So it's a, it's a touchy subject. You don't want to take people's license away too early, but you also don't want to take it away too late, you know, and have poor outcomes. So one of the things we didn't talk about, but. I I'm interested in, I talked or I sent a message to the NTSB and, and got a, uh, a very nice response, but it wasn't very satisfying about, uh, e-bike crash data. And there, mm-hmm. there just isn't a lot. Uh, but apparently the rise in injuries and deaths on the road for cyclists has some correlation to e-bikes. And I'm wondering if you're looking, if you are looking into any of that. I'm definitely interested in that. I think it, like you said, it's a data issue because the way data are being collected right now don't do a good job distinguishing a conventional bike from an e-bike. And I mean, we have this sort of the same problem in our data with um, automated vehicles and knowing whether a vehicle has an automated function and whether it was turned on. I mean, that's actually, that's another thing with e-bikes. You can turn off the e-assist. So knowing whether it was on or not, it's it's a really hard data question. Good point. Yeah. I have not personally myself done any e-bike specific work or research. It's a topic I'm definitely interested in. And I am hoping actually to continue along the lines of doing research with older adults to the, I know I talked about driving, but I think the other angle I want to go in the future is to think about alternative modes. And one of those could be, could be e-bikes and thinking about how that could be an alternative mode for, for older adults. So they, to, to maybe do less driving, but still be able to get around. Um, but that has safety implications too. So <laughs> it most certainly does such an yeah. interesting spectrum of topics. I, I really mm-hmm really like what you're doing. So how can listeners find out more about your work? Can they actually follow some of the things you're doing? Yeah. Well, so I'm in terms of social media, I'm on Twitter X and my handle is at Kara underscore Haman. So my first name underscore last name. Um, but I also have, I direct the, we have a research lab called the Transportation Research and Injury Prevention Safety Lab. There's, the acronym is TRIPS, <laughs> the TRIPS lab. Um, and it's our URL for that is trips.lab.uiowa.edu. Is it T-R-I-P-S? Yes, T-R-I-P-S. Trips.lab.uiowa.edu. Yes. Nice. We will definitely put yeah. a, uh, a link to that up on the site. Such interesting work. And as I went through your... Uh, page on the University of Iowa. Uh, they have a page for you, you know, for mm-hmm. the work you're doing. Mm-hmm. There are all these articles you can go back and read and and find out, like the one on the crosswalks, which was I yeah. think in USA Today is the opinion piece was there. Yeah, yeah. It actually is kind of crazy how it got distributed. It started. It originally was in the Des Moines Register, 
And then it got Des Moines. If you, <laughs> the story <laughs> is Des Moines Register is owned by Gannett. And Gannett owns like a whole bunch of newspapers. So it got distributed all over the U.S. and and including USA Today. So it actually got a, a pretty wide readership on that. That's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. good. We, so, we all wish for that kind of PR. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I really am, like I said, I only really know specifics about what's happening in Iowa right now for bill tracking. But I, I hope we see some more changes um, in other states uh, and we'll we'll keep looking into that. For sure. Great. Well, I really appreciate you taking taking time to talk with me today. We've been speaking with Dr. Kara Haman at the University of Iowa. You can find her work at trips.lab.uiowa.edu. You can follow the work that they're doing out there in research. And um, I hope we get to talk again. One real quick note, I was on my way back today from uh, an errand and heard that this coming Monday, which will be whatever it is, uh, February, I don't know, 20th, maybe? 19th. Okay, February 19th. <laughs> uh, NPR's program 1A is going to be talking to planners all around the country about uh, city planning and transportation. Oh, nice. Yeah, so yeah. I just thought that was interesting. And all of yeah. the people, yeah, I'm I'm kind of letting people know. I just happened to catch it. I'm like, oh, cool. So thank you again. Uh, I hope, uh, I do hope we get to talk again. This is fascinating. And thanks for doing the work you're doing. Yeah. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. My thanks to Kara for taking time to speak with me today. I thought the conversation was very interesting and clearly she's passionate about her work. You can follow the work she's doing at trips.lab.uiowa.edu. And remember, be careful in those crosswalks. Let's take a break, and when we return, we'll speak with Terry Lansdell. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. Terry Lansdale is just fascinating and uber articulate. From his advice on ultra cycling, such as riding a thousand miles in a week to see if you can pass muster for a race such as PBP or RAM, to remembering your place on a trail, including yielding to pedestrians, Terry doesn't miss a beat. And get a load of this. Since 2013, it's been illegal for the North Carolina Department of Transportation to spend money on standalone bike projects. Terry is hoping to change that, too, by running for office. I'm not sure how he keeps all these balls in the air at the same time, but damn, he sure seems to. Hi, Terry. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me today. It is my pleasure. You're in North Carolina. I am. I'm actually in Charlotte today. And how is the weather? A beautiful day. Uh, it's it's classic Southern weather. Uh, you know, we can wear shorts about ten months out of the year if you're if you're bold and brave. And uh, 
the other two months, you need to be completely covered up. But we're having a, a great, um, wonderful, warm February day right now. Nice. Well, we're supposed to get one here in Cleveland, but we know it won't last. You know, Cleveland's one of those places where if you don't like the weather, wait a minute, <laughs> it'll change. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about, which is the post I saw on LinkedIn. And I thought you just might be talking about RAM and which is what you were talking about and how your experiences kind of shaped your life and, and some of the things you thought about then. And then I realized when I looked into you more that you really just, I fell down a rabbit hole because you are also the executive director of Bike Walk North Carolina. And everybody knows I'm into all of that. And you are a commissioner of another um, organization. So, so let's, let's talk about your background, uh, where you grew up, how you got into cycling and how, and when you became involved with race across America, it's such a grueling event. Where to start? I guess we'll start from where I grew up and, and kind of got, got to here, but, um, I grew up in Atlanta. So I moved to North Carolina, uh, when I was 18 and went to a a school in Western North Carolina called Mars Hill University, and, and really, for the most part, since since that time, I have uh, lived in North Carolina. But I made North Carolina my true home in 1990, and and I lived in Charlotte uh, since then. So most of my adult life, I've lived here in Charlotte, North Carolina. You know, my my story early on was, you know, I, I, someone says, "Well, how do you how do you how did you get into riding bikes, and how did you get into racing bikes?" Well, I always used to joke, you know, I lost my first bike race at 14. And I've been losing bike races ever since, but I still love to do it. So, uh, yeah, that was back in the day when BMX was, you know, um, catching hold and we were building bikes and, you know, and, and patios and garages and from trash cans and and who knows, uh, who didn't care? We didn't care about pedal length or rat trap pedals. We just wanted a bike we could ride. And, and, if, it, and if it was too close to the to the ground when we turn a corner well we just kept the pedal up so uh, you only you only make that mistake once things really turned around for me for ultra cycling uh when i got uh got kind of at my level for triathlon and that was really around 1993 or so i, I could never really get to the podium by myself um could always do well in my age group and and you know finish respectively overall but then I ran across this magazine called Ultra Cycling, and it had a, a sapia picture of a guy named Jerry Tatry, who, who if you're in the ultra world, you should know who, know that name, uh, a pretty important historical reference. And I looked at the picture of him, and I think that was one of the earliest magazines Michael Shermer put out and put out on a national level for ultra cycling. And I looked at that cover in the bookstore and said, I don't know what that guy's doing, but I want to be that guy. And um, from that point, when I touched that magazine, there was a thing called Hell Week uh, that I did that same year. There was a thing called the 24-Hour Challenge in Michigan that I did that year. Um, I saw the Tour North Texas, which was a 580, 68-mile race um, that got me qualified for the Race Across America all in the same year. Just from, from touching that magazine within one year, I was I'd done three things that I'd never even imagined the year before the month before, the day before. Wow. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Terry Lansdale. He is a Ram rider and it's such an, an amazing event, but I, I don't know Michael Shermer, but everybody knows something called Shermer's Neck. And we'll talk about that, uh, which, and Race Across America is beginning to ramp up for this year now. 
right about now. People are starting to get ready. And I know you've not only raced it, you've crewed it, which is a whole different way of actually doing the event. The crew is so crucial to the riders. So Hell Week, if if I'm not mistaken, was that in Wisconsin? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, I did the Super Randonneur event with Lon Haldeman back in the day as well, where we did the 200, the 300, the 400, and the 600K all within seven days. Uh, oh, my so goodness. You really are crazy. <laughs> I had never ridden in Wisconsin and went up there and did that. But uh, Hell Week is out of Fredericksburg, Texas. Oh, okay. It started, um, gosh, I don't know, um, maybe in San Marcos a couple of years before I did it in 1994. Uh, but I did it in, in Fredericksburg. I think maybe the first year or the second year it was there with uh, Nick uh, Nick and Becky Gerlich, I believe, were, were leading it at that time. And uh, gosh, what a story that was. But I flew in on a modified mountain bike and thumbed a ride from Austin over to Fredericksburg. And uh, it was it was a crazy time to, to be there. But uh, yeah, we've done done Hell Week there and um, uh, have done the, the Super Randonneur in Wisconsin as well. So those those thousand mile weeks are critical for anyone as, as folks are getting ready for Race Across America now. And I really like the format that it's transitioning into. But really a marker for how well you're going to do, in my opinion, how well you're going to do in Race Across America is, is how good you feel after a thousand mile week. Whether it's traveling somewhere, whether it's doing it here, um, you know, outside your own front door, because it tests your body, it tests your position, and it tests your organs, right? Your nutritional processes to make sure you're having everything dialed in uh, for that kind of duration. I don't think you need to do that more than once or twice a year, uh, but, you know, it is a great opportunity to kind of test your metal uh, in a safe environment um, to make sure that you can manage that 300 mile a day mark for Race Across America. Are you are you coaching anybody? I've done it in the past. Uh, I've coached several people um, in in Solo Ram uh, and Furnace Creek 508 uh, and uh, the Race Across the West. Uh, I've also crewed in those events as well. So. Yeah, we've done that, and we've we've crewed and, and been a, been a coach for um, a, an eight person team who really started as a six person team and ended up as a five person team. But uh, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast for that one. <laughs> we started out as eight, and then we went to. All right, to... no, we started out as I don't know. <laughs> that's confusing. <laughs> we will talk about that at some other time. That sounds like fun. So, are you going to be involved in Ram this year? I don't think so. Not as a rider. It's been a, it's been a few years. I think the last time that I was um, involved was on the eight person team. And and that's been a few years now. Um, my last time as a rider was in, in 2010 in the race across the West uh, in which I was, you know, rider number 106, which, which I embraced the, um, the lifetime numbers that, that Ram protects now uh, and, and, and did that on a fixed gear. Uh, and it really took a lot out of me. And I was like, okay, well, I think, I think we're done for, for right now for what we're doing and really just ride recreationally and, and more of a utilitarian rider. Uh, part of my work at Bike Walk North Carolina and as an advocate here in Charlotte is to make it safe for people to walk or bike or use active mobility, whether riding on the road, integrating with transit or leaving their house, uh, really. And um, that's really what I do now is, is, is I, try, uh, I try to ride as often as possible. And um, but I utilize an e-bike as much as I use a car. So um, the bike is still part of me. 
Let, let's talk a second about your fixed gear experience. I have We have a friend, a client and a friend, a really good friend, who did ride across the country on a fixed gear. Uh, and we built that bike. It was a track bike. And, and I guess he got to the Rockies and he had an extra gear and, you know, they flipped the wheel over. And so he had some options going up and down these mountains and found that the Berkshires were the hardest thing for him. Those steep, short climbs that the Rockies were easy. I'm like, I, nothing was easy. How you did this? I don't know. What kind of a bike did you ride? Well, first off, yeah, I did it racing, <laughs> not riding. That's so, true. It was, That's even it, crazier. So, you know, there's there's no kind of, you know, um, similarity there uh, other than you're on the bike because you, you have this kind of intense clock ticking. That's true. You know, so we had in, in that time we had 72 hours to finish. I finished in 69 hours and and got beat by two other two other men on regular bikes. So I was six hours away from the po from from first place when I did my race across the West on a fixed gear. But the rules are interesting um, for, for fixed gear racing in, in the race across America. So you can either have the front chain ring be the same on all your bikes. You could have 10 bikes, but they all have to have the, the same front chain ring and you could have 10 gears on the back. That's that's the way the rule set up. Or you can have the one gear on the back and then you could have 10 bikes with as many different front front chain rings as possible. That was a rule. Interesting. When I Right. So you couldn't just sort of pick a 4212 and then a 5212 or 5215 and and switch bikes that way. That wasn't the rule scenario. So so what I did was I I, I found that that my testing for a thousand mile week on a fixed gear, which I did in Hell Week in Florida, uh, was to have a 4517 and a 4515 as my two gears. And what that does did for me, and when I did the math, is that I could go 23, 24 miles an hour at 100 RPM going down a hill and at the at the 45, 15, and that was protected my knees. And then climbing at 45, 17, it allowed me to kind of go that six mile an hour grind, that walking grind. If your friend has done, you know, ridden across America on a fixed he knows that that you know you have to walk up the hill eventually. You know it's like one you know body weight, body weight, body weight. Um, but the unique thing that I did that I figured out was I created a governing system. So you know this is not something you can do now with these modern disc brakes. Uh, but when we had rim brakes, and I did I rode Mossies, and there's a whole story around that I'll get to at the end. But but I created a governing system so that when we were going down the glass elevator or any of the, the Rockies, uh, the, the climbs going down the backsides of those hills where you can you can easily on a regular bike get 50, 55 miles an hour. There's no way you can spin and you can't let go of the pedals um, and doing a fixed gear. So what I did was I opened up my brakes, you know, a little lever on the side, I opened up the brakes and then I tightened my brakes down just to where they were touching and then lock that in place. So essentially it was just close enough where it wasn't rubbing to ride all day long. And when it came time to go down downhill, I would reach around to the back, flip that lever down, put that governor just in the right space where I wanted to, and the brakes would automatically engage. So it would govern me down the hill. So that when I was going downhill, I didn't have to squeeze my brakes as hard. I didn't have to squeeze my brakes the entire time. So that really was an important technique that I learned and developed that I'm sharing with you and, and a larger audience now um, that really did help me protect myself um, in that event. So, yeah, it was uh, it was an amazing kind of piece that I had 
had tried to figure out and and make happen, and it worked very effectively for me. So the rules today, I don't know if they've changed since you did the event, but I do know that everything is through axle and disc brake, which is just, for road bikes, it's just so nonsensical to me, but that's a different story. So today, do people still do this event on fixed gear? Is that is that a uh, an okay thing to do? Is there a category? Well, you know, I set several records on fixed gears. I sent the, sent the set the twelve hour record in Dayton, Ohio. I set set the twenty four hour record in Sebring uh, for twenty four hours. Now those those have since you know been been broken by far greater men than than I ever uh, dreamed of being. But um, you know th- that that fixed gear piece hasn't been challenged in the race across the West. Uh, we'd love for it to be challenged in the race across the West and, and now in the race across the East for the for the race across America, that new segment that they're doing uh, this year as well. But we'd love to be able to have someone try that. You know, it's uh, it's exciting. <laughs> Records are meant to be broken and, and this is not a significant record, but it's from what I can tell, it's the longest, fastest fixed gear time trial uh, for a race across America or any ultra event. So what was your biggest challenge in all of your ultra racing. Uh, and the first thing that comes to mind for me, besides fatigue, which of course you learn how to manage that with when to sleep, when not to sleep, but I'm thinking more about nutrition than anything else. You know, knock on wood, I've, I've had pretty good success in that. You know, I, I crewed for um, a fellow named John Stoneman and a woman named Muffy Ritz and then a gentleman named Rob Kish. Uh, before I even did the race across America. So I watched and learned uh, on three crews, four crews actually, because I crewed twice for Rob Kish, just how it needed to work. And um, if if you do well, and as I mentioned before, if you do well in, in your thousand mile week, you know what works for you. And you know, the hardest part for me in, in, in nutrition wise was the the protection of water. And what, what people don't recognize on the race across America is that everything's great for the first 72 hours, but, you know, you, you leave a loaf of bread out for 72 hours on the kitchen ta- counter. You don't want to eat that loaf of bread after 72 hours, right? Well, the same thing for milk and the same thing for water. So you've got to recognize the stages in the race to do deep cleaning, to do resets and making sure that you're using the proper water scenarios and water protection processes because you know you're in you're in a car with eight ten other people or sharing that same space and you know bathrooms and sneezes and everything happens right you know and and you want to make sure you protect that 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 liquid that goes into your body because you know a lot of folks don't finish ram because of their nutrition and what i saw is from my experience was that we have to have good protocols and everyone should have good protocols about that you know uh, you don't stick a dirty bottle in a and a clean and a clean container that you're going to drink from those kinds of things you you take it for granted, but uh, on a day race or something. But you know when when we race across America, there, there's no room for errors like that. So I was lucky, and I spent my entire uh, career using uh, Hammer Nutrition. I, I've, I point to my little quilt back here because it's mem- my memoir of of my uh, my cycling history for the most part. And, um, you know, Hammer Nutrition has been a wonderful supporter of mine through the past and other ultra cyclists, but, but their nutrition program allows you and what every rider should do is to dial it in for your own specific needs and for the temperature of the race you're racing in and the environments you're racing in. What, what works for you at 35, 40 degrees 
is not going to work for you at 98 or 100 degrees. Right. Your ratios are different. Your 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 salt intake is different. Your amino acids are different. So you really have to be um, quite dialed in to, to make it work, no matter where you are, where you are in your training and where you are in your RAM or ultra cycling career. And it evolves. So that was a long answer there, but- uh, Oh, that's that a would... good answer though. I, th I think that people will appreciate that. Not everybody is going to do RAM, but a lot of my listeners do long events. You've got PBP, which just happened last year, so it won't happen again for four more years. But, you know, it's uh, 750 miles over 90 hours and and nutrition is a big part of it. Yeah, nutrition's a big part of any uh, endurance event, period. Yeah, I, I really learned- a really hard lesson at the 24 hours in Michigan one year. I um, I didn't have any real support there, and and there was a lot of a lot of things that were happening in the background for me being in Michigan, uh, at that time in my life. But um, I said, like, okay, I've got a great idea. I'm going to make up all my bottles for the entire ride, and I'm going to put them in the cooler. I'm just going to grab, grab, grab. Well, you know, that doesn't really work because when you have a live, living organism, even though it's cold, it 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 eventually goes bad through the day and. And I really learned my lesson about uh, protocols for for managing your nutrition. You, you don't let them sit too long. You keep them cold, and you also manage your water your water in a, in a consistent manner. So, yeah, lots of different things. You, most people who've done RAM have tens or hundreds of of lessons and and stories to tell about how they learned how to make their um, RAM successful. Did you ever experience Shermer's neck? You know, knock on wood, I did not. Um, I had, uh, throughout my career, uh, I had a great support system at a, at a bike shop called The Right Gear uh, here near Charlotte, North Carolina, in, in a place called Kannapolis. And uh, we learned early on about how to avoid that. You know, seeing seeing riders struggle with that on a race across America and, and do well and do and not do well Um it was it was a real issue for me, and and the key there is is that that balance, right? You don't right. want to be far forward, and you don't want to have your shoulders do this. Right. As soon as you see yourself riding um, uh, in bad form, is what I called it when I was coaching folks. So when you you don't want to sit out and, and do training rides where you ride in bad form, and as soon as this happens, so what he's doing because they you can't see him, but I can, is shrugging his shoulders up to his ears, which anybody who's had a fit done by me will tell you that they go down the street and they hear me say, relax your shoulders like a, a thousand times. They can hear it in their heads. And it is so important. You are so correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And as soon as you have a position that forces your elbows to lock out, well, the only, the only shock absorber for your head is your neck. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, so uh, there yeah. are pictures of people having these contraptions holding their heads up it mm -hmm. almost looks like something from the 1800s like from a, a um frankenstein uh horror movie <laughs> you know the way that <laughs> these contraptions let me remind our listeners again we're speaking with terry lansdell such an interesting conversation i do want to move on to some of the things you're doing now and um, reserve the right to get back to you about some other stuff. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak with Terry about the work he's doing now, which is really important work and um, work that I want to know about. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist.
We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Terry Lansell. You need to listen to the first half of this conversation because we talked all about his career as an ultra-distance rider, including multiple Ram and uh, Hell Week in Texas and the 24-hour Michigan. One thing I want to backtrack on is that 24-hour event because we're very close to Michigan. We're in Cleveland. And I know people customers, clients of ours would go up and do this 24 hour. Is it still going on? Well, gosh, I haven't, I, I think so, but it was, it's changed locations uh, from where we, I think we were in, in Denton, 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 yes. Michigan. Yes. Right? I think it's in, in Grand Rapids now, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I haven't checked on that. Uh, they had and- some problems getting people to actually run it for a while and maybe it's come back. I haven't heard anything. We used to get a flyer every year but I haven't seen anything in a while, but okay, I'll check into it. So let's talk about another one of the hats you wear. Uh, You are the commissioner of the Charlotte Mecklenburg Planning Commission and the executive director of Bike Walk North Carolina, as if you don't have enough to do. So tell me about the two different organizations and then your role. And then I really want to kind of dive into Bike Walk North Carolina to know what's going to be happening legislatively this year. Sure. Well, uh, I'm I'm one of the one of I believe twelve commissioners on the Charlotte Mecklenburg Planning Commission. We are the largest uh, city in North Carolina with over a million people here in the Charlotte Mecklenburg area. And um, we on that on that appointment role, we serve as the land use gatekeepers for how we develop and grow our community. And for me, I just have a, a transportation hat. So when I look at a parcel, um, when someone comes in and say, hey, I've got this plot of land and I want I don't want to just build one house. I want to build two houses or 10 houses or a skyscraper or whatever. And, and I look at the the key features of uh, is it is it active mobility accessible? ADA requirements, are they in place? Is there enough space for people to live, work and engage each other on a human scale as we look at those projects? So uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, it's, it ends up being about 10 or 10 or 15 hours a week, uh, looking at all the parcels and growth that we have every month. Um, but it's a, it's quite rewarding when you can have developers and city council members support your efforts and your language for change so that we are not so car-centric and uh, only allow the access for, for our types of land use to be done by vehicles and vehicles only. So I have a question about that because it comes up all the time that there is so much pushback from some of the quote unquote old time kind of urban planners who it was wider roads, more lanes, faster, and traffic calming we know is important. Trees are important, uh, slowing traffic down, fewer lanes. Do you get any pushback about some of this new development? Are you hearing people say, I want to live and work close by and I want groceries and I want amenities? And uh, I I want to move back into a more urban setting. Well, the pushback that we get are not from the general public. I don't get a lot of pushback from anyone saying, you know, John Q. Public or Sally Q. Public going, say, hey, we don't want sidewalks. Hey, we don't want the ability to, to cross the road. We don't get that. What we get is from the developers, the people who are trying to profit from creating something new and their attorneys that represent them. Those are where the kickbacks come from, uh, because they have they have to understand that in order to do business, 
And to build and create a structure that may be there for the next 80 or 100 years, you only have one chance to get it right. And it's not a cost burden. It is cost effectiveness to make that uh, design proper at the time of, of construction rather than trying to fix it later on. And I think that's where that's where the, the the largest pushback comes from. Again, is from from the developers themselves and the attorneys that represent them. But that's you know again that's a, that's a much deeper conversation about land use planning and and smart growth. Um, those are all kinds of keywords and making sure that we incorporate complete streets in our designs and access opportunities for for how we build and grow our community. A community that had um, farmland or a house every quarter mile or mile and a half, depending upon the situation, all of a sudden has 1,200 houses on that road. Uh, it's important that you create the infrastructure for the development at the same time you create the development. We can't have development happen first and infrastructure happen second. And that's something I fight for every single day on the Planning Commission. How does the federal infrastructure bill, how is it impacting what you're doing? Are you getting benefits from it? Well, I think that comes more from my other hat for Bike Walk North Carolina. You know, the investment in the bipartisan infrastructure law, the the IAJA, uh, really does uh, allow states and North Carolina specifically to have access to federal dollars to do more, to build that infrastructure, to to fix the problems of the past where we haven't had that vision of build the infrastructure first, then build the development. Uh, it has helped us in North Carolina. And for Charlotte, you know, that's a tipping, ticking clock as well. Those funds aren't going to be out there for very long. So we've got to make sure we have every community, whether it be Cleveland or Charlotte or wherever, um, starts to press staff to say, hey, are you doing this and are you doing it now? Uh, and making sure that we remind them as, as active mobility users by, in the form of biking and walking, that, that we are represented because we are paying for this just as much as cars and people who own cars, people who own houses, et cetera. You know, and for the most part, uh, the hardest thing that we have telling developers and and uh, talking about the, the opponents of active mobility and integration into transportation is the fact that the majority of us own a bike and own a car. The notion that we're not paying for it by choosing is just not fair. Uh, and in North Carolina, we've got a, a situation where all the bicycle dealers contribute to the highway fund. So, so bicycle dealers are paying for roads. And, uh, you know, in North Carolina, we've got um, a general fund tax that's being shifted over to the highway fund because we need more dollars to help improve our transportation. But that's what I do at BikeWalk in North Carolina. Yeah. That's very interesting. Do you have a Vision Zero plan? We do. We've got, I think we have now 11 communities across the state that are a Vision Zero, and many of them are now staffed. And then we have a state Vision Zero committee as well, in which I'm a stakeholder on. And we're working really hard to advance those, those protocols. An interesting piece here this week at a, at a city council meeting in Charlotte, one of the one of the council members said, hey, can we make it not Vision Zero to a goal, goal less than Vision Zero? We need a we need a you know vision one or vision twelve you know I'm like well which you know which family member of yours do you want to sacrifice to make right. that right no kidding who who's going to be the one you're when you take away the goal of zero you're putting a target on someone's life and I don't think that's fair for politicians to do that at a local level the national level 
gosh, you're getting me on the advocacy stuff though. So, well, let uh, me tell you, that's, you know, that's a big part of why this podcast even exists is, is that I, I want my listeners to get involved with advocacy because I think that, and I hear it all the time from planners, especially people like Jeff Speck and, and um, Ch- Chuck Marone and all of those guys, we can, as individuals make a difference. Speak up, you know, contact, get involved with advocacy, advocacy, contact your legislators, do all of that. We'll move on from that, though, but that's all true. So I have a question about the East Coast Greenway. Are you part of it? Well, Buckwalk, North Carolina is a stakeholder. Um, it, it does go through North Carolina. But the interesting piece for North Carolina, and this is, you know, this is a problem with advocacy. I'm glad you mentioned that, because what we see is the quote unquote, liker crowd, right? I don't like talking and referencing the way people dress as a identifier for who they are, but we understand a road cyclist, whatever that case is, that that's the bias that's implied here. But the majority of the East Coast Greenway as it goes through North Carolina, guess what? It's not a greenway. It's an on-road facility, mm. right? So up to, in some estimates right now, up to 70% of the Greenway in North, East Coast Greenway in North Carolina is going to be on-road facilities. So we need to make sure that, that our on-road is integrated into all active transportation and all user designation for our roads. Uh, because this is significant uh, tourist, a significant economic driver, uh, and, a, and a significant land use opportunity for North Carolina to protect that kind of all road user designation in the facilities we create. So, I, yeah, I get into big arguments about this all the time about um, whether or not I want to get to to the word e-bike here. There's a lot of uh, off-road stuff where e-bikes are getting into trouble. Well, people are getting into trouble with their e-bikes, but are you having e-bike legislation? Are you having e-bike rebates? Are things happening with e-bikes? I know you said you have one, so I know that you ride one. Do you ride it mainly on the road? Yeah, I I ride it everywhere. Wherever I can take a bike, I ride an e-bike. And and because what is it still? It's still a bike. Um, But for North Carolina... We wrote an e-bike classification law several years ago. It didn't make it through, but we're following people for bikes and that kind of philosophy of the classes. Um, But what we see in North Carolina is is municipalities taking the lead on how they want to regulate e-bike usage on on on-road and off-road facilities. And we're we're challenged by that uh, because depending upon who's at the dais determines whether the rules are there or uh, soft or hard towards people on bikes. And, uh, you know, it comes down to design and engineering uh, as well for the types of greenways. But there's also a behavior profile. You know, when bikes get on greenways, bikes become the cars. So so we as cyclists on greenways must respect the pedestrian as the king of the road at that point, so to speak, just like cars should respect us as the king of the road, because we are the most vulnerable users, pedestrians, the most vulnerable road users, the hierarchy of trail usage, if you recall, everybody stops for horses, everybody stops for pedestrians. I'm going to get this wrong, but the downhill stops for the uphill, those kinds of things that that have to happen to make everybody safe. And I think the the more times we as cyclists 
respect the people that we're sharing the space with, the better opportunity we have for a continued use of all facilities and have a, a much much better opportunity to grow those facilities in length of miles uh, and also space. But to be honest with you, sometimes and we have a, a great rail trail here in Charlotte that's 10 feet wide, doesn't have a center line to divide it. It's just not enough room. And demand is just so great. You know, for me, riding a bike there, I'm I'm having to go at walking speed because there's just so many people there. And I think the more times we understand that we need to have space built, either on-road or off-road, built for everyone to have an opportunity is, is very critical. So, um, yeah, I, I support e-bikes wherever we can ride a bike, on a sidewalk, where appropriate, on greenways, on trails, uh, on the road. Uh, there's enough roads in North Carolina and, and elsewhere that restrict bicycles and pedestrians, that bicycles and pedestrians are paying for, that we should be um, allowed to, to be safe in our choosing to use transportation options that don't require an automobile. Are you building protected bikeways? Well, we as a, an organization aren't quote unquote building, but we're supporting policies that do. Well, do that's what I meant. I meant the state. Yeah. North Carolina, we have an interesting law and this is, this is, I have another hat to, to share with you. I'm actually running for House District 105 in North Carolina for State House. And in North Carolina since 2013, uh, it's been illegal. Let me say that again. Since 2013, it's been illegal for our North Carolina Department of Transportation to spend money on standalone bicycle and pedestrian projects. How is that possible? Our General Assembly made that law, and it's something that Bikewalk North Carolina has been, been working very hard to repeal. We've got it in Senate budgets, House budgets, Governor's budgets. We've got standalone bills, and we're hoping this short session, the DOT Legislative Changes Bill, will, will finally make it across the finish line and restore sanity in how we build roads and, and spend our transportation dollars. Wow. That's a pretty nasty little uh, piece of legislation prohibiting. So it's interesting that uh, I had a conversation with the director of uh, Ride Illinois, and apparently Illinois has a permitted but not intended use clause in their state constitution for bikes on roads. And it's creating some issues legislatively for, you know, crashes. So I understand that these these quirky little things that happen state to state, it would be nice to have some kind of um, evenly adjusted uh, legislation so that people were all on the same page. Like we need protected bike lanes. We need the good laws. We need good, and we need good behavior by cyclists. Very important. Cyclists and drivers, right? Well, for sure, drivers. Yeah, you know, because we as cyclists are often drivers as well. So how how we act as drivers really indicate how we how others may act around uh, cyclists when we pass them. You know, I used to often say I worked for an organization called Trips for Kids here in Charlotte for many years, you know, and, and I said, you know, in order to be a better driver, bike more. Because you understand the need to give space, you understand the, the need to pay attention, you understand the need to uh, manage yourself around cyclists and how to get around them safely. Uh, Bike Walk North Carolina is about to release a couple of PSAs, and one is a, a unique law in North Carolina that is so, that is allowed. You're allowed to change lanes to pass, even in a double yellow line. 
uh, when there's a, when it's safe to do so to pass a cyclist. And, and we're, we're trying to promote that education opportunity. And Bike Walk North Carolina has several educational programs. One is called the Bicycle Safety Quiz, where it tests your ability as a cyclist, as a driver, as a child, as a, as a professional driver, to make sure that you understand the rules of the road and how to be safe when you do ride or drive a vehicle on our road. Do you have uh, programs in schools to teach kids how to ride? Schools um, at their at their PTAs at law enforcement agencies. Yes, we have a, a another program called our Friendly Driver Program, which doesn't focus on the cyclist. Right? It doesn't say, okay, as a cyclist, you need to do this, you need to be that. No, it focuses on the driver, right? Because we want to increase yielding scenarios for drivers. You know, every car has this little pedal just to the left of the accelerator. Right. And break. And people just don't use that. And, um, you know, that's that's the key. We want to make sure that we we try to instill in drivers is that you approaching a cyclist or another vehicle. Right. You have to yield to that person in front of you. It's your responsibility to, right. to do that. And getting people to recognize that the cyclist was there first, even though you approached them, right? That's the reality of it. And um, the other piece we talk about at Bike Walk North Carolina and, and me as an advocate is that, you know, what is the first rule of driving? I'm going to test you here. What's the first rule of driving? Pay attention. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you can you cannot pay attention and get away with it. You know, you might sneeze and you, you can re recover from that. Well, I'm going to make you answer another one. But the first rule of driving is you don't hit anything. Oh well, ever. yeah, okay, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't be—you would be surprised. Oh, you're right. Don't get that right. You know, when that happens, your life changes. The other person's life right. changes. Absolutely. A third party involved, be it insurance or police or ambulance or hot, there's somebody else that has to be involved. So the first rule of driving, if we can get drivers to recognize that first rule. That's their responsibility is to not hit anything ever. That's a key thing. We would have Vision Zero tomorrow if we had every driver taught that from the time they got their learner's permit, from the time they turned their driver's license in. That's a great rule. I mean, it's pretty simple. <laughs> and you know what? Everybody gets behind the wheel of the car with an intention, at least in, somewhere in their brain, that says, I'm not going to hit anything. And yet they hit things like cyclists, right? Right. So the last thing I want to talk about is how people can follow what's going on in Bike Walk, North Carolina, maybe your planning commission work. And do you have any websites or, uh, I don't know, blogs that talks about your time as an ultra cyclist? <laughs> That's the easy one. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you just need to write a book. Well, yeah, yeah. There's there's lots of books out there for that, and I think there's there's great opportunities. But but certainly for me, uh, my ultra cycling career was was very personal. It was very personal in, in what I wanted to do with it. Um, you know, I I used my ultra cycling career to to meet family members who I'd never met before, uh, to to have those relationships start um, that I'd never had before. That was very personal to me, uh, and. And, you know, when you when you have a guy like Danny Chu who gives you grief for finishing the race across America in 243 hours and say, and he says, you've never done it in under 10 days. You know, it puts it in and puts it in perspective that I, I've never never was a great Ram rider. I was I was always pretty good. And um, 
uh, was consistent and, and really loved to do it and was very proud of the work that I did. And, and, I was, and for the most part, I gave my effort every single time uh, the best effort that I could. And I think that's the, the beauty of, of ultra cycling is you go out there doing that every single time. I don't think you could ask for anything more than that. That's right. I'm very proud of that. Uh, but for me, for BikeWalk North Carolina, you can visit uh, bikewalknc.org. You can take our bicycle safety quiz at, uh, at the same location. We also have the Friendly Driver Program. If you're in North Carolina, we can set up a one-on-one -on -one meeting with your group. Uh, just go to bikewalknc.org slash Friendly Driver Program. Um, we also have a summit that we have every year. We're in our 13th year for our statewide summit. Uh, but we're we're looking for opportunities to continue our education process and uh, uh, grow the opportunity to reach Vision Zero and more importantly um, restore the bike ped funding limitation in North Carolina and give people a chance to embrace options for transportation that they have out there. So, if somebody wanted to come down and visit Charlotte, what would be the top three things you'd want them to see? Well, I think the rail trail is our, one of our most premier events here. That's a that's a trail that, that runs along our uh, light rail line uh, from the south of Charlotte to the north of Charlotte. And uh, it really is spectacular. It's a, it's a great opportunity to get out there uh, and ride um, in a safe place and visit um, bars, breweries, historical places. It really is the key feature for, for Charlotte. I think for, for North Carolina, gosh, you know, we've got the mountains, which has the highest peak uh, east of the Mississippi uh, in, in Mount Mitchell. Uh, if you want mountain roads on the Blue Ridge Parkway, wow, what a glorious time to ride your bike in, in spring and fall, especially. Uh, and gosh, we have the coastal plains and Wilmington and our coastal rides are second to none as well. We've, we've got ultra cycling events that happen in Washington, North Carolina, ultra running events that happen on the coast. Uh, and it really is, North Carolina is a cycling haven and a cycling heaven for, for many folks who come here. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me today. We've been speaking with Terry Lansdell. He is the executive director of Bike Walk North Carolina. He is an ex-ultra cyclist, although when you, so sitting behind him, of course, you guys can't see this. Maybe he'll take a picture and send it to me. It are all of these wonderful, what are they, number plates and bibs and stuff? They're old T-shirts. Oh, that's right. They're T-shirts from the, and they're up on his wall and they are his background and they're just awesome. I really, <laughs> UMCA, Ram 24 crew. I can kind of read some of them behind him. Thank you so much for talking with me. I hope you get this legislation passed to get some protected bike lanes. That's a really weird one. And um, I hope we get to talk again. Anytime. Thanks for having me today. My thanks to Terry Lansdell for speaking with me today. Follow Bike Walk North Carolina at bikewalknc.org and take the safety quiz. You can also learn about the September Transportation Summit and all the other programs and events happening in the state. Before I sign off today, I'd like to mention something that happened this week that I found incredibly disturbing. I don't want to get into a political or philosophical discussion, but this incident was truly upsetting to me. Leah Goldstein is one of the most celebrated women athletes I've ever had the honor to speak with. She has set many records, including at the age of 52, being the first woman to win Race Across America. 
She has also been in high demand to deliver her message to young girls and women that women can accomplish anything they wish. She's an inspiration. Leah was to be the keynote speaker at the International Women's Day Inspire Inclusion Conference. Then suddenly she was disinvited because she's Jewish and had served in the Israel Defense Forces as a young woman. At first, Leah was not going to publicly address the dismissal, but after social media and news groups picked up the story, she felt she needed to make a statement. Here is a bit of what she said, and a link to the original story, as well as her response, is on our website, OutspokenCyclist.com. Quote, I speak to inspire and motivate. I speak about obstacles and how to overcome them. I speak about bravery and growth and standing up for one another. I don't believe you hired me because I was a soldier and a cop. While these jobs are part of my story, and I'm very grateful to have had these experiences, they do not define me as a human being. As a Jewish woman, I would never be offended if a Palestinian woman were to speak about her obstacles in life journey. I thought that's what women were supposed to do for each other, listen and support, end quote. Regardless of your feelings about the Israeli-Palestinian situation, in my opinion, this incident was both uncalled for and sorely misguided. I'll step off my soapbox now, and I hope no one was offended by my comments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can find show notes, photos, links, and a written transcript of the show at OutspokenCyclist.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app. Spring is just around the corner, so stay safe, stay well, and remember, there is always time for a ride. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page, or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of BBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.